This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. What is the job of a writer? Fiction explains us as people. It tells us something about the world, tells us something about humanity, about our own natures. And that, when you write a novel, that is the job of the writer. We're trying to understand it. It's like that line of, you know, it's not the job of the novelist to provide answers, but to pose the questions better. And if you write something which challenges people and makes them angry at times, then all the better for it. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, this morning's show looks at the relationship between truth and the imagination with writer John Boyne. John and I spent some time together a few weeks ago sharing stories of love, loneliness, secrets and obsession. I was never a particularly social child and I'm not a particularly social adult. I am at my happiest really when I'm at, at home in my office with, you know, the computer and the dog working on a book. I'm not a sort of a big socializer really. But I wouldn't say I'm lonely. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not lonely. I'm, I just like being alone, really. His superb company, wonderfully honest, crisp, emotional and curious. You write for an audience. I'm not trying to write into a vacuum. And any time that I walk into a room where there are people sitting there who want to hear me read or want to ask me questions, that's a wonderful thing. And it's something I'm very grateful for. Now, while John is best known for his hugely successful Holocaust novel, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, one of the most popular World War II novels ever written, there is more to this talented Irish writer than the success of that famous book. He is author of eight novels for adults and four for children, and literally picks up a writing award year on year. For those of you who are new to John's fiction, some of his more popular novels include The House of Special Purpose, Crippen, The Terrible Thing That Happened to Barnaby Brockett, Mutiny on the Bounty, and The Thief of Time. These books are challenging, moral, deeply felt, and have cemented John's reputation as one of Ireland's finest and most prolific young writers. My personal favourite is The Absolutist, a powerful meditation on war, courage, belief and principle. It's a fabulous book. I really recommend it. Now John's latest novel, Stay Where You Are and Then Leave, is his fourth children's book and it's a heartwarming wartime tale of a boy's quest to find his father. The book is set in London during World War I and centres on the character of Alfie Summerfield, whose father is swept up in the excitement of the Great War and joins the army. Now, Alfie's father writes to his wife and son from the trenches. But after a couple of years, the letters stop coming. According to Alfie's mum, that's because dad is on a secret mission for the government. Alfie, however, suspects she may be lying and sets out to uncover the truth. The book opens on Alfie's fifth birthday, July 28th, the first day of the war. Stay Where You Are and Then Leave is a hugely uplifting read without being overly sentimental or mushy. Now, while the book looks at big subjects for children, such as poverty, 
trauma and shell shock. It does so with a unique charm and creative ease. Without doubt, John's strength as a writer is his ability to create inspirational and emotionally resilient characters. They jump off the page. You feel them. You walk with them. They stay with you. This magic, combined with a love of history, research and storytelling, has allowed John to touch the hearts and imaginations of young readers. My lovely niece Kate being one. John kicked off our interview with a short reading. Let's take a listen. Alfie took out his dusting cloths and wiped Mr. Podgett's left shoe clean before dipping a buffing cloth in the tin of polish and spreading an even coat across the surface of the shoe. Then he picked up the brown horsehair brush and began to run it briskly over the clean area. He quite liked the smell of polish. It reminded him of when he used to run into number six to play with Kalina. Her house always smelled like this. Better news today, said Mr. Podgett as he scanned the headlines. Look like things are going our way for a change. Maybe this blasted war will come to an end soon. I said to Mrs. Podgett this morning, Mrs. Podgett, I said, I think it's only going to be a few more months before the end is upon us. Of course, she claims that I say that all the time and it never comes true, and perhaps she's right. But this time I really believe it. Alfie said nothing. He knew from experience that Mr. Podgett preferred to talk and talk without being interrupted. It was better not to speak until he was asked a direct question. Our son Billy is still over there, of course he added. I've told you about Billy, haven't I? He's somewhere in Belgium with his battalion. Can't say where, of course. All very top secret. Hush, hush. And on the QT. He has more than 300 men under his command, if you can believe it. Of course, he was always very responsible and conscientious, even as a boy. Never gave us a moment's trouble. You're the same, I imagine. Aren't you, Alfie? A credit to your family. Mum says I'm a proper handful said Alfie. Well, I'm sure you don't mean to be. But Billy was always well behaved, so it's no surprise that he's gone on to earn such responsibility. All right, there was that incident when we went to Cornwall and he got into a terrible fight. But that was something and nothing, I always said, and should never have been allowed to develop into such a fuss. The boy was all right in the end, after all, wasn't he? Wasn't as if he was in hospital for more than a couple of days. And as for that girl, the one who said she'd witnessed it all, well, she was a flighty piece. Everyone knew that. There was talk about her. I won't say what kind of talk, Alfie, on account of your young ears. Let's be honest, there's no smoke without fire. Ever been to Cornwall, Alfie? No, sir said Alfie. Beautiful part of the world. Where do you go on your holidays then? The Lake District? Wales? Somewhere up north? Alfie tried not to laugh. Sometimes adults ask the stupidest questions. He'd never been on a holiday in his life. He wasn't even entirely sure what you did on one. Was it the same things you did on any other day, only in a different location? If his family went on holiday, would he be shining shoes on Blackpool Pier? Would Granny Summerfield be looking for a bit of gossip at Stonehenge? Would Margie be struggling to make ends meet on the Isle of Wight? God, John, that's a tremendous paragraph. You're a superb reader. But what really comes out is the gaps and inequalities in life there and how some people are on the margins and some people can't even appreciate the margins or understand or even see where they are. Yeah, well, I think in this book, I was keen to show a young boy who was living in fairly impoverished circumstances, but doesn't quite realise that himself. You know, it's 1914 in London. He's never had much money, so he doesn't uh, he doesn't think about it particularly. But he is happy. You know, he gets on with his day. His father's gone away to war, so he's having to be the man of the house. He's having to go down to King's Cross and shine shoes. But I think a young reader coming to the story today, I tried to get in as much detail about what it was like for children at that time. And a young person coming to this story today uh, might perhaps learn something about the differences really in it over the course of a century between being nine years old then and nine years old now. And of course we get the experience of Alfie being cold and hungry. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's cold and hungry most of the way through the book because they don't have any money. His mother Margie is, is out working as a nurse but she's working all day long. Alfie is pretty much abandoned as most of the children in my children's books are. They all seem to be left alone in the world and having to grow up quicker than they should. And um, yeah, he, he, he has to find food where he can find it. He has to find warmth where he can find it. Companionship where he can find it. 
it. But again, like most of the children in my books, he never lets it get him down. He's always optimistic. He's always cheerful. He's not self-pitying in any way. He just gets on with it. I think one of the things about writing novels is that uh, after a long time of writing them, you look back and you recognise these common features rather than setting out with them in mind in the first place. For example, with the, uh, you know, talking about the children in the four children's books, I didn't set out at the start of the first one, say, thinking this is the way I'm going to write about children. It's more now I can look back at them and say, gosh, this is something I seem to keep coming back to. And then asking myself the question, well, why do I? Because I didn't have that type of childhood. You know, I had a, I had a happy childhood. I was, you know, middle class boy. I wasn't really lacking in anything. But even as a reader, as a kid, I seemed to enjoy stories about children who were on their own in some way and had to um, find some heroic element within themselves and had to grow up quicker than they should have. I didn't really much like adults interfering in the stories in children's books and in in my children's books there are the adults are really on the outside quite a lot and whatever com- whatever stories they have whatever complications are going on in these children's lives they usually have to sort them out themselves and no one is going to come in and sort it for them and they're very resilient characters and very brave but at the same time most of your characters face enormous burdens and huge challenges and do you think that's important for young readers to identify with yeah the other thing they they are is they're all readers actually um They're always reading books in my books. Um, I do think it's important. I think, you know, children's literature is hugely important. People forget about that sometimes, you know, because a lot of the successful children's books are series of books and dystopian type or, um, you know, vampires or things like that. And they're quite easy, I think. And publishing likes them because you get into a, a, you know, one book a year and same jackets and all that. And it's not very challenging to young readers. And I have a lot of adult writer friends who seem intimidated by the idea of writing for children. Even though there's not that much of a difference, you know, I mean, you know how to write a novel. You just write a novel with a child at the centre of it. And as an adult writer, as well as a children's writer, it's 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 in my interest to get children reading as much as possible. Now, I always write standalone books. You know, I don't finish them on cliffhangers where you've got to then go out and buy the next one and the next one and the next one. I like beginnings, middles and ends. And the more I can do that, then the, the more that I, I want to write about something that really matters for young people, something that will get them thinking, something that might lead them on to educating them themselves on a particular subject. Like with this book, it's set during the First World War. And if the child reading this feels some sympathy for Alfie or a connection to him, then that child might ask, well, why does he go through these things? And, you know, what else do children go through? And, and maybe seek out other novels, nonfiction, educate themselves in some way. And I suppose history becomes a little bit more meaningful and more tangible and more of a felt and lived experience if they can delve into the characters and experience their days with them. Yeah, and it does for me too, though, because I'm sort of surprised when I look back at the number of books I've written which are set in the past because I didn't set out that way you know I didn't think that was where my life was going to lead me but um, I always choose times and places that are interesting to me anyway that I've read about during the the period of writing the book if it's a children's book it usually takes me a year an adult book usually a year and a half and during that time I'm completely locked in inside that that period of time so you know with with both stay where you are and with the absolutist I was in world war one all the time with House of Special Purpose, it was Russian czars. It's it's something that I get very uh, obsessed by and fascinated by. But then at the end of it, you know, one of the great joys of finishing a novel is you can you can start something else. You know, you can think of a new story to write. I, th- I think what's important to me in, in history is telling the stories which haven't been told. I felt very much when I started writing The Absolutist that there was two aspects of that which I wanted to write about. One was the issue of conscientious objectors in the First World War, which I hadn't read a lot about. And one was the issue of gay soldiers in the First World War, which I had read nothing about. So I combined those two things together. I did didn't want to just write, you know, page after page of trench horrors, because the problem with that is having read 
quite a lot of First World War novels, you really fall into other people's research and other people's ideas rather than your own. So I tried to make that a First World War novel where very little of it actually takes place within the war. And in Stay Where You Are and Then Leave, it's a First World War novel which never leaves London. So we don't go there at all. But we know that that's the, the great cloud hanging over the book. So I guess I'm trying to find those stories. With this one, it's about shell shock. And... I haven't read a children's book, which is about shell shock. And usually when I publish the books for children, you know, I spend a few weeks touring, going into schools and talking to kids and talking about shell shock to children. It's not a subject they're familiar with at all. So you're kind of opening their eyes to that a little bit. Once you write an interesting book and the characters that children will engage with, they won't put that book down. You know, they'll just keep reading. And in terms of the research, though, for World War One. How did you go about it then, you know, if you didn't want to expose yourself to too many histories or what had been written, deflect you in some way from what your core theme was? Well, I started with um, letters that had been written uh, from soldiers at the front. I spent a bit of time at the Imperial War Museum in London and I read a lot of letters from soldiers back to their families and I read a lot of letters from the families back to the soldiers. And what I tried to find was I was looking for the change of tone. I didn't know whether there would be one, but I wanted to see what I would discover. And what I discovered was that when the soldiers first went off to fight, the letters home were very enthusiastic, very positive, because they thought it was a great lark. But also they talked a lot about everybody else in their battalion. They would tell stories. And as time would go on and they would be in the trenches, say, they would stop talking about other people and they would internalise everything and it would be simply about themselves. And I noticed that the letters coming back from the families, they would be writing back, perhaps having formed a relationship in the letter with three or four names that, you know, the son has mentioned before. And they would start asking questions of what's happened to those people. And maybe they, those people had died, maybe they'd been killed already. And But the soldiers would never really respond. I just noticed that as time went on, everything became internal. So in the absolutist, I needed the boys to be just like regular boys, really, in their youthful sections, you know, full of good cheer. But because the novel is narrated after the war, our narrator Tristan is filled with regret, remorse, shame, and of course his whole life is clouded and will be clouded for the rest of his life by what has happened there. So particularly in a first-person novel, that's quite difficult because you're going back and forth with the same character, but his, his voice has to be different while at the same time sounding like it is the same person. And have any family of those men who served in the front, have you got any comments from them? Did they come back to you in any way? Was anyone able to look at some of the characters that you developed and say there was a strange familiarity to the experience of my great-granduncle, let's say? Yeah, yeah, there was some, certainly. I mean, you, you get letters to the publishers or messages on Facebook or something, and most of it, you know, positive and friendly, some of it critical. With a historical novel, there are some liberties that one takes as a writer. You know, you don't always stick absolutely to the facts because there's a bigger thing to serve, which is the story you're telling. And there is a tendency sometimes on the part of some readers to to look for that single error, or, you know, and, and complain about that. But um, there's not much you can do about that. But most of the responses, I think, have been, been fairly positive. Surprisingly, maybe a couple of sort of negative in the sense of the, the gay soldiers. You would think in this day and age, you know, that wouldn't be um, something that people would get upset about. But if we look to America and new legislation in the American army. Yeah, I, I remember, um, what was it, about two years ago, I guess, during the uh, the primaries for the, the American presidency and watching one of the Republican debates. And they had a, like a Skype link to soldiers in Iraq to ask a question of the candidates. And... Uh, the Skype comes on and it's a soldier sitting there and the whole audience bursts out into applause. And then the soldier starts speaking and he says, you know, my question uh, to the candidates is, uh, I'm a gay soldier. And he barely got the rest of the sentence out before the audience started booing him. And not a single candidate on the stage defended him. He's a soldier out there fighting for his country and these 
morons in an audience just start booing him. And, you, you, like, you know, the, the mind just boggles, you know, the kind of lack of education, the sheer inhumanity of them. But stories are creative and life is creative. That's why, particularly in, in that, that novel, that the bravery I wanted to show was the bravery of putting the guns down, not fighting, deciding not to fight for the same cause that the people are fighting for. You know, that when, when Will Bancroft in The Absolutist puts his guns down, it's because wrong things are happening, immoral things. He believes in the war, he believes in the motivations behind the war, but there's a difference between fighting according to the rules and breaking those rules. It was an incredibly brave thing back then to be a conscientious objector. And in this children's book, you know, there's a, there's a conscientious objector living on Alfie Street as well who suffers great violence towards him, the anger of the the people nearby. And you can understand their anger because, of course, their sons are over there getting killed and putting themselves in danger. And um, So you can kind of understand their anger, but it, it takes enormous courage to stand up and say, I'm not going to do it, and this is why I'm not going to do it. You know, it's, it's like getting you know, punched on the street and deciding that you're not going to fight back. And why do you think it is that if we look at today's political landscape, we haven't really learned much from the horrors and traumas of World War One and World War Two? Well, the, the last line of the last two lines of The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas is, of course, all this happened a long time ago and couldn't happen again, not in this day and age. And, you know, that was a kind of, a, I guess, an ironic statement on my part that, of course, we don't learn. You know, these things still go on and we only have to pick up a newspaper. We see that every day. Why? I don't know. I think it's just human nature because it's, it didn't start with the First World War. It started 2000 years ago. You have a very unique relationship with another Irish writer where you collaborate on each other's books and you give each other advice. Can you talk to me a little bit about this? Because it's remarkable. Not every writer has the huge belief and trust in another writer that they can actually give them the, the steerage. Yeah, this is uh, Claire Kilroy we're talking about. We, do, we don't actually collaborate on our books, but we, we give each other drafts when the draft is pretty close to completion, I think, when we need you know a fresh pair of eyes. And it's very important for me, certainly, because I've given Claire four or five books, I would say, at this point. And you know, I really respect her opinion and she's, she'll tell me exactly what she thinks. You know, she's not giving, she's not patting me on the back and giving me praise. And that's, that's very helpful because, you know, when you spend a long time on a novel and you've written maybe seven or eight drafts of it, you can't, sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees and you do need somebody to come in and just look at it and say this, 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 and this, and and you'll immediately recognize it and, and know what you need to do to fix it. One of the good things about being an Irish writer at the moment, I think, is that in my generation of Irish writers, if you take people like Claire or Chris Binchy, Paul Murray, Kevin Barry, people like that, there's a great sense of community between people. There's no competitiveness. They would agree with me if I said that kind of rejoice in each other's successes and help each other out with our failures, you know, that we're pals. And I think that's a good way to be because writing, as far as I can see over the years, from what I've read about other writers and so on, is not always that friendly. And I've had older Irish writers say to me and say to us that they don't recognise in us what their generation was, you know, that there's just a more sense of... Um, community there. And maybe we're becoming less snobby about it all. Yeah, I think so because I think there's room for all those people I mentioned and others were all writing very different things and very different styles of writing and uh, I mean you couldn't compare say what Kevin Barry does mm. with what I do. It's completely different but you know we could still sit and talk about books all day and all night long and and that's helpful. Maybe it's, maybe it's, that's the reason. Maybe it's because none of us are treading on each other's toes in any way. We all have a distinctive style and we're, we're, we're writing about particular things. And whether it's you're, you're looking at more historical fiction to some degree. A lot of the writers that you mentioned are more commenting on today's social landscape, whether it's post-boom Ireland, whether it's violence, whether it's the marginalisation in society today. Yeah, and that's something that I, you know, in, in 14 years, whatever, I haven't, it's a place I haven't gone. And I've never written about Ireland, but I always said I, I, I wouldn't write about Ireland until I had a story to tell. And actually, my next adult novel 
is for the first time, hallelujah, is a contemporary novel set in Ireland. It's a real departure for me, I think, to do that. So do you think all the feedback will be as friendly? Uh, yeah, well, I've already given it to Claire, actually. So <laughs> she's already read it. Um, and, um, you know, had some had some good some good pointers for me on it. I hope it'll surprise people that, you know, this isn't something set in the 19th century. It's set between the 60s and this very day. Pretty much all takes place in, in Dublin. Uh, it was interesting to me to do that because, of course, you know, I grew up in like the 80s in Dublin and just drawing on the city that I know so well and memories of childhood and summer holidays and so on. It, it opened up a vast reservoir of memories that I had never tapped into before. And it was a really interesting writing experience. And did that scare you at all? No, it didn't. I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I, I don't think I ever felt so lost in a novel where I just felt, you know, why haven't I done this before? <laughs> now I understand why they're all writing about Ireland. You know, it's, um, I just thought, you know, that's, everyone else is doing that. I will do something different. But once I actually tackled it, I'm not sure how, how much I would go back to it. There's a part of me thinks I've said everything that I want to say about it in this book. So has something shifted for you as a writer, do you think, Ben? I think it has, I think things are always shifting you as a writer you know with each book you write you change and you have a different idea about who you want to be going forward as a writer and where your novels want to take you and this one certainly has for sure it's called a history of loneliness and it's it'll be out in september so i, I guess it's just because it I, i'd never explored all that that type of writing before even the, the narrator's voice is um, a very unusual voice for me and you know when you challenge yourself when you step outside your comfort zone a little bit and i know in books where my comfort zone is i know there are certain things i can do and those those are the things that I have to stop myself from doing. You know, you have to try something different. I, I just I just always feared what would happen if I tried to write about Ireland. Would I? Because I read pretty much every Irish novel that's published. Would I find myself, you know, imitating Roddy Doyle or Sebastian Barry or whatever? You know, and um, you've got to find your own story there. Whereas I feel in all these other books, I have my own style. So hopefully, when people read it, it will feel like it's its own individual book. And loneliness has been a theme, though, in your books before, and in, in some of the characters and how they've grappled with life and the challenges. Yeah, I think isolation is there, certainly loneliness and people feeling outside of society in some way and not understood. That Again, that's one of those things that I look back and I can recognise that in books like The Absolutist and The House of Special Purpose, where people keep themselves to themselves a lot. A lot of my books, even though they're set over maybe lots of years in lots of countries, there's very few characters in them. Often there's only, you know, four or five speaking parts in my books. You know, it's, people live very quietly in them. I think I, I probably has, have always felt a little bit isolated and, and lonely in my life. And I was never a particularly social child and I'm not a particularly social adult. I am at my happiest really when I'm at, at home in my office with, you know, the computer and the dog working on a book. I'm not a sort of a big uh, socialiser really. But I wouldn't say I'm lonely. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not lonely. I'm don't think I am. I'm pretty happy. But I just like being alone, really. So then being a writer is a superb excuse then because you have to be on your own and nobody judges you for being on your own well, because you have to kind of lock yourself in and explore the inside of your head. Well, half the time, yes, because half the time that's what you're doing. The other half of the time, of course, you are getting judged. Be being a writer is one of those jobs where when you finish doing your work, you know, you get reviewed in the papers. And I remember John Banville saying that um, if he gets a bad review in the papers, he could rely on his best friend to phone him up and make sure he's seen it and you know that's always the case or you know if you make the mistake of you know reading your reviews on Amazon or something like that and also you, you know the, there is a responsibility on a writer now if you want a career as a writer you've got to get out there you've got to be part of the international literary festival circuit you've got to be talking about your books you've got to be able to talk in front of audiences you've got to be able to talk on radio shows or television or whatever you, you become a 
a salesman for, for your books in a way that writers in previous generations did not have to be. And in some ways that's good because there are times certainly where there's nothing nicer than just getting on a plane, going off and meeting readers and meeting writers and having a nice little holiday and having publisher pay for it or something. But other times it gets exhausting, absolutely exhausting. You know, you're talking about yourself a lot, often talking about the same thing a lot. But I mean, I shouldn't complain and I'm not complaining, but I'm saying that it's it's a weird dichotomy between the two, between being completely alone and being completely busy and in front of people. It must be totally head-wracking, though, having to tweet every day and then stand up to a whole audience and smile and literally, as you said, sell yourself. That must be grating. I, I don't mind when, when I'm being asked questions. A lot of the children's events I do, I'm basically put on a stage and they'll often bring a whole school together. So maybe like five, six hundred kids there. And I put on a stage for an hour and told, you know, do something, you know, entertain us. And, and that is exhausting. You know, that is really exhausting. And But the adult events say where you're being, you know, interviewed about your books and people have read your books and they want to ask you questions. That's not so much. That's that's actually quite enjoyable. And it's lovely to meet readers. You know, the, it's lovely when, you know, people say we did this book in our book club. I mean, that's that's an amazing feeling. You write for an audience. I'm not trying to write into a vacuum. And any time that I walk into a room where there are people sitting there who want to hear me read or want to ask me questions, that's that's a wonderful thing. And it's something I'm very grateful for. But do you not have to almost get into character and give people a bit of what they expect of you? Do you have to, like, psych yourself up and almost get into the mood of being the writer on stage, jumping about the place? Well, you do. You have to, you have to put on a show, certainly. But you learn over time how to do that. I mean, you learn how to, um, you learn how to talk to an audience. It's really the small details, like how to use mics right and jokes that are funny and, you know, how to get an audience on your side, but also how to be, how to be honest with them. Like, I, I try not to have too many prepared answers that, you know, I try to actually explain who I am as a writer, where I'm coming from, the type of writing I'm doing. Often on the striped pajamas journey, for example, there would be people with quite serious critical questions about the book. And that, I, I quite enjoy that. I quite like getting into a good debate about it and saying, not just that book, but any of the other ones and saying it's it's more interesting in a way than somebody somebody getting up and saying oh I really liked your books if someone gets up and says look I have a problem with this book explain to me why this happened or this happened or doesn't this seem out of character and sometimes they're right you know and sometimes you, you recognise something in the book and you say gosh you know when you say that yeah you're probably right you know but there we are you know can't get it right every single time that takes a lot of energy and a lot of grit it does but that's that's what you set yourself up for and it's um, it's not something I can complain about because I know there are so many people out there with stories to tell with books that they've written um, that they can't get published often not because the book isn't a book of quality but that you know in publishing there is a certain amount of luck involved you know getting your book to the right person the right time the right agent the right publisher and I, I know how difficult that is you know I had you know, my own struggles at the start so I, I could never be negative about it like anybody in any job there are days where you go home and you just you know say ah, it's driving me demented And that was Dublin-born novelist John Boyne talking to me about his new book, Stay Where You Are and Then Leave. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. We'll hear more from this smart, focused, talented Irish writer after the break. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. If you've missed any of our recent shows, don't worry. They're all up on the Talking Books webpage. All you need to do is go to www.newstalk.ie forward slash Talking Books. There's plenty of podcasts up there, lots of author interviews, and I'm sure you've got enough there. 
to keep you going. OK, let's get back to this week's profile interview with award-winning Irish novelist John Boyne. We've been having a very upfront and personal chat about the sometimes turbulent and exciting world of books and writing. Now, after a few moments in John's company, you begin to realise pretty fast just how disciplined, smart and hardworking this young Irish writer truly is. Before John took the big leap and became a full-time novelist, John got up very early every morning, wrote for a few hours and then started his day like many Inspiring writers in his local bookstore. A job he told me he absolutely adored. Let's hear a little bit about it. Well, I have to say the seven years I spent in Waterstones were seven of the happiest years of my life. They were just wonderful times. I mean, I was a young guy. I was I started there when I was about 25. Uh, so to spend most of your 20s and start of your 30s in a bookshop with other young people talking who, you know, that we had aspiring writers, actors, musicians. It was a wonderful place to be. Wonderful. And I published my first two novels when I was working there. And it was such a wrench when I had to leave. You know, it was such a wrench. It took me years <laughs> to get over it, actually. And there have been many times where I thought I was happier as a bookseller than I am as a, as a writer. You know, that it was just wonderful. You know, people coming in saying, uh, you know, my, my son has just got into reading and he's read this, this and this. Can you recommend something? And you take that person by the arm and say, come with me. And you could spend half an hour in a section saying, oh, you've got to read this. You've got to read this. And then seeing all the new books coming in. And then, you know, when the reps would come in with proofs of books that weren't coming out for six months, but by writers who you really like. The amount of writers we had coming into the shop doing readings. Most of the Irish writers were coming in. Inspirational for a young man like myself then to see those people coming in, reading from their books, talking about them. Me maybe getting a chance to ask a question or two in the staff room before they left. It was great. But you've never been short of inspiration, I don't think, John, because you've literally published a novel a year mm. for maybe the last 12 years. So that's a lot of hard work. But you must be very systematic because that's tremendous output. Yeah, it is. I have always been very disciplined. Back in the Waterstones days, when I was when I when I wanted to get published, I used to get up, you know, about five o'clock in the morning and write for about two or three hours before going to work. I had no choice; I had to put in a full day's work in the shop. So, and I knew I'd be too tired in the evening, so I would get up early and do it because I wanted to get published. And since then, I, I'm lucky in the fact that I don't seem to struggle for ideas. I seem to have quite a good fertile imagination. I also think I often say to aspiring writers that if you're reading a lot and writing a lot, if you're spending most of your day doing those two things, I think the brain becomes much more open to ideas. You, you know, fiction, narrative, story, you become much more able to recognise a story when it hits you. There's an awful lot of young writers, aspiring writers who don't read. You know, I've taught classes where, you know, it's say 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, ask them what they're reading at the moment and nobody's reading anything, but they all want to be writers. I don't believe you can do that. It's like, you know, wanting to be a footballer but never kicking a ball. Because I'm reading constantly and I'm writing constantly, I think it just makes my brain, whatever way my brain is formed in my head, it makes me open to ideas. I am disciplined in that I write every single day. Malcolm Bradbury, when he taught me in UEA. That was his, his line, right? Every day, including Christmas Day. But the other thing is, I really genuinely enjoy it. I absolutely love it. And I've got nothing else to do. You know, when I get up in the morning, I've nothing else to do all day other than read and write. And when I'm traveling,